Hi, this is Stephanie Hansen, and you're listening to Dishing with Stephanie's Dish, where we talk with people in the food space who are doing cool things. And I wanted to talk with Hank Shaw today. He is the author of Hook, Line, and Supper. And I have to say, Hank, this is a great cookbook. It's about local, I say local because I'm from Minnesota and I have a cabin on a lake, but it's about lakes rivers and streams and fishing. And you talk about how to fillet fish, but you have some awesome recipes in here. This is, I think, one of the best cookbooks I've seen for fish. I really appreciate that. We worked super, super hard on it. Yeah, I bet you did. I'm actually working on a cookbook myself right now, and it's so hard. How did you get started in this? And are you, you're obviously a fisher person. Tell me about your genesis of putting the cookbook together. So this is my fifth cookbook. Uh, My first one came out 10 years ago and it's called Hunt, Gather, Cook. And that was kind of a a little bit of a primer on all of the things that I do with the wild world. So edible wild plants and mushrooms and hunting and fishing. And then ever since then, I've been writing kind of deep dives into specific topics. So I've got a waterfowl book. So it's called Duck, Duck, Goose, as you might imagine. Or, you know, in Minnesota, it should be called Duck, Duck, Gray Duck. Gray Duck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I wrote a, uh, a book called Buck, Buck, Moose, which is all, as you might imagine, deer, venison, elk, and that sort of thing. And then a couple of years ago, I wrote a small game book for like grouse and pheasants and rabbits and things called Pheasant, Quail, Cottontail. And then, so fishing is kind of the the uh, the the next step and and it's interesting because I had been fishing way way longer than I've been hunting I've been I've been hunting only about only about twenty years and I've been fishing for my whole life. Where do you live? I live in Northern California uh, near Sacramento. Okay, so are you fishing in lakes around there, or are you doing ocean fishing, or all of the above? All of the above. So my heart is in the salt. So my mom is is from near Gloucester, Massachusetts, and I grew up in New Jersey. And so people don't really realize that that ocean fishing is religion in New Jersey. I mean, everybody does it. It's a big deal. And it's it was a big part of my childhood. Yeah. And, you know, and my mom comes from one of the oldest seaports in the, in, in the United States. So. I'm a, um, I'm a sailor and we have sailed all over the world and people ask us all the time if we fish. And of course we don't because I'm terrible at it. And I have a cabin on an Island on a Lake. That's a trout Lake, but I can't catch fish there either or walleye. So I am really impressed by people that are good at fishing because it seems like you would just like go out on a Lake and you'd put your line in and you'd have your minnow or your, your lure or whatever. But there's a lot of skill to it that I think people don't get. There is a ton, and it, what's interesting is that the it's kind of an ever a never ending onion. So it starts with just knowing what kind of rod and reel you should have in your hand when you're trying to catch X or Y fish, and then it goes to there's a lot of detail on that that you can get into, and then there's well, what do you put on the end of the line? What kind of bait? What kind of hook? What kind of sinker? What kind of lure? And then, but it gets way beyond that. It gets into where do you choose to fish? Uh, when do you ch- choose to fish? Um, you know, from a boat or from a shore or from a lake. It's just there's a there's a ton of endless amount of information that you can that you can absorb, and it can be very very local. Like I used to live in uh, Fredericksburg, Virginia. Sure. And, and it took me two years to learn the local the local reservoir, and that was two years of pretty constant fishing. And at the end of it, I, I really, I could 
I, I would almost never get skunked, but it took me two years to get that good. I can imagine that we lived in Baltimore, Maryland and lived right on the Chesapeake Bay and tried fishing there too. And we were terrible. <laughs> what I, I love about I mean, my advice is always for new people is to go with guys and ask them questions. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. I think um, hiring a guide is super smart because they show you the tricks of the lakes that you're on, or if you're in the ocean, they'll show you where to go. One thing about your book that I liked so much was it was it wasn't any one region. Like you really covered from the East Coast to Lake Fish. You had a huge section on soups and stews, which I really liked. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the reasons why this was my fifth book and not my first was because even though I had been fishing my whole life, I, I had not really fished in certain areas and or fish or and there were certain keystone fishes that I really wanted to get good experience with. So um, I ended up working in Alaska as a commercial fisherman and uh, I, I used to live in Minnesota. So uh, that helped me a lot with, with the fish in that region. And I've spent an awful lot of time in the Gulf of Mexico and so what I wanted the book to be is is as useful for you in Minnesota as as it is for me in California, but also for somebody who's in Alaska or Texas or, or Maine or Florida. What is happening with like the world of fish? So we're hearing a lot about shortages of crab and shortages of lobster. And it's unclear to me if it's because there's a shortage of people fishing for them or a short of, the, of them being available. The coronavirus has really disrupted the food supply chain. What do you know about that? There is very, it's really not, there will never be a, a shortage of people to looking to catch the things. Um, there might, like Corona did have a short term issue with it last year, but that was, you know, that was a one year blip. The issue is, is habitat. It's always habitat. And the problem with habitat in, uh, in a fishery stance is that you don't look at it the way that you look at woods or you look at a field like you do on land is and so bad things can happen to habitat without people really noticing it. And it has to do with gear choice. It has to do with changing water temperatures. It has to do with, with bad decisions in terms of, of how fisheries managers are running things. So it's, it's difficult to pin it all on one set of factors, but the general 30,000 foot view is that there are too many humans and not enough fish. Yeah, it sure seems like that. And what's interesting is, have you heard about the company that makes the Impossible Burgers, which I believe are based in pea protein? They're making a fish substitute that is just about to hit the market. Have you heard this at all? I haven't. Yeah, it'll be really interesting because I think what they did with pea protein to replicate a meat product was pretty interesting and the meat product's pretty good. So I'll be really curious to see if they can do something like that with the fish product. And in Minnesota and around the country, obviously, there's been a lot of interest in aquaponics. Um, are you interested in that just as a way to sustain uh, the ability to eat fish? Very much so. I mean, it's so you think about aquaculture as, you know, aquaculture as we know it, as we know it. Now, there are sort of elements you can tie back all the way to, to ancient times. But as we know it, it only has existed since really the 60s. So if you think about that very short period of time for humans to figure things out, we've come a long way to the point where, in my opinion, there should be more and more and more 
farmed oysters and mussels and and other sorts of that kind of a bivalve mm-hmm. because they are nothing but a boon to the environment. All they do is help the environment. Yeah, they clean. They do. They clean and they're 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 a great product and there's virtually no downside. So fish could be a little bit more of a downside because typically you you feed fish to fish. So one of the big examples is how do you feed salmon? Um, they typically will feed salmon with forage fish like anchovies or herring or that sort of thing. And so then you have an issue of like, well, okay, so you're, sir, you, you have a feed ratio of X number of pounds of anchovies for X number of pounds of waking and salmon. And, and so now we have chickens down to where you can, it's something on the order of two to two, two to three pounds of feed to a pound of chicken, which is a pretty great ratio. Like for an example, uh, a goose is eight to one. So it's not mm-hmm. nearly as, as efficient. Um, now, now fish are in that eight to one and 10 to one kind of category. So what they're doing is not, not through genetic engineering, but through, you know, old school breeding, they are working on that particular ratio just to make things more efficient. And fish farming, I think has a bit more um, challenges, especially if you think about when they fish for or when they farm for Atlantic salmon and they have those pens on the Pacific coast of British Columbia, that's a problem. Yeah. So there are way more issues involved with fish farming than there are with, with shellfish farming, but I think ultimately we'll probably get there. Yeah. And I mean, I think some of the fish get out and there's all kinds of stuff that people talk about. Um, When you think about, fish and you think about aquaponics or aquaponics in general, it's kind of interesting because many other cultures outside of the United States, fish is like a mainstay in their diet. And here in the United States, we're still sort of consumed with beef as a protein. It's just a cultural thing. And it's also the nature of the United States. I mean, we have more land mass than we do shoreline and it just is, just kind of is. And then you also have a the fact that kind of the, you know, it's less and less so, but the dominant kind of baseline culinary culture of the United States upon which everything kind of riffs off of is English. And, you know, they call the English the beef eaters for, for a reason. So right. it's just, it's part of who we are and we will never be a fish first nation. Just, it's just simple as that. It is interesting to think about, though, like you mentioned that you've got other books about venison and moose and hunting, you know, like when are we going to start eating squirrels and rabbits and all of these things that we seem to have in abundance as we're on the eternal quest for protein? Well, I mean, I already eat squirrels um, and, and I have a book that has an entire chapter dedicated to them. <laughs> um, and in fact, the first hunting I ever did in my whole life was in Minnesota uh, hunting squirrels. Wow. Uh, near, Hast- near Hastings. Sure. And I think the answer with squirrels is nobody's figured out how to farm them. And the reason why nobody's figured out how to farm them is because they have the rabbit as the model. So close to 80 years ago, before the Second World War, um, rabbit was as common as chicken in the American diet. Mm-hmm. But ultimately what happened was um, they bred chickens to be a higher meat to bone ratio. So it is a lot easier to break down a chicken than it is to break down a rabbit. So what people get crosswise with with rabbits is, oh, they're bony. And their bones tend to be very brittle, unlike bird bones, which are bendy. So you get fragments of bones. 
so there are there are mechanical reasons why the rabbit is not as popular as it could be. Um, but that said, lots of people do eat rabbits. Yeah, I've seen it more on menus as of late, and certainly more as we've gotten into more foraging and more into the wild, as it were. You'll, you're seeing more of that on menus. Are you familiar with John Whiffley at all? Yes. Yeah. He wrote for Field and Stream, if I remember right. Yeah. And he he's from the Twin Cities and he had a book um, called Venison that sort of does what with venison, what you've done here with Hook, Line and Supper and talked a lot about techniques and uh, butchering. And it was a great book. So if you get an opportunity to check it out, he's got a, a barbecue truck here and a burger truck now in a couple of breweries in town and just a good forager kind of guy seems a little bit like you. Yeah. I mean, I actually haven't met him and it's one of those things that we've passed like ships in the night a couple of times. Yeah. Well, I loved your book. I love his books too, but I just thought a lot of these recipes felt accessible and like I would actually cook them. I appreciate that. I'm excited about that. And we've got um, some great uh, seafood resources in the Twin Cities with Coastal Seafoods and the Fish Guys. So I really appreciate you spending time with me today. It's Hook, Line, and Supper techniques, master recipes for everything caught in lakes, rivers, streams, and the sea. And my guest is Hank Shaw. Thanks for being with me today, Hank. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye.